First John chapter two. First John chapter two. John explained to us in verses three and four of chapter one. He was writing this letter so that we would be able to go deeper with the Lord, go deeper in our relationship with Jesus. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that you may have fellowship also with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so these things we write unto you, that your joy might be full or remain full. He wants us to be able to remain close to the Lord, no matter what's going on in our life, to continue going deeper with him, getting him to know him better, following him more closely. And certainly we all want that. But if we're going to go deeper with Jesus, John explained in the rest of chapter one, we need to be open and honest with God about our sin. I need to say the same thing, confess to God. Say the same thing that God says about my sin by owning my sin rather than justifying it, excusing it, or ignoring it. And the blessing is that when I do that, God forgives me and he begins surgery to do surgery in my life to change that area of my life. But this does leave some questions about sin because we struggle at times as Christians with this idea. Like sometimes we, okay, so I, gotta, I do sin as a Christian, but I need to confess my sins and be open and honest before the Lord. And, and the problem is, is that in that beautiful place of where we're supposed to be, Christians, sometimes we tend to swing this way or this way. We tend to sometimes go, well, I guess sin's not that big of a deal. Go this way. Or we tend to go over here and begin to say, well, if you sin too much, so then that's it then you can't do this confession thing anymore. So when John closes out chapter one, it does leave us with some questions. Does this idea that we can confess our sin mean it's okay to sin as long as we confess it? Or is there a limit to how many times I can confess my sin? What is the right perspective on sin and and the right perspective on how it affects my relationship with God? Well, John is gonna answer that in verses one and two of chapter two. So chapter two, verse one, he says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John starts off with this reminder of his affection for his readers. He says, my little children. It's a a term of affection and usually for someone much younger. It would be weird for me to walk up to somebody who's 20 years older than me and say, my little child. That would probably not be appropriate. I think it's significant, though, that he calls them his children. He uses this term of affection. Some, for example, they say, well, 1 John is a letter written only to unbelievers, that all that stuff about confession and walking in the light of chapter 1 only applies to someone who needs to get saved still. Uh, in other words, as Christians, we never sin, and therefore confession isn't supposed to be a part of our activity as a Christian. I need to point out a very important truth. John would never call unbelievers his kids. He would never call them family. He would never speak to them as family. If they're unbelievers, they're outside of the grace of God. They're not part of the family of God. So he would never call unbelievers his children. So this letter is clearly written to those who are already believers. There are parts that apply to unbelievers that if they were to read it, they would apply to them too. But he is writing to believers here. These things do apply to us. It is dangerous always to try to make the Bible conform to my theology. The Bible should be my theology, period. And if the Bible ever messes with my theology, that's a good thing. My theology is just a study of God. So if in my study of God or my understanding of God, the Bible messes with that, that's a good thing. 
because I should always have the Bible be the, my established theology. Nothing should ever interfere with that. Now, John uses this phrase, my little children, because he is an aged believer. Almost everyone that he was writing to would be physically younger than him by a whole lot, but they would all surely be spiritually younger than him by a whole lot. Probably no one that he was writing to had walked with the Lord as long as he had. And so John is using this term of endearment because he cares, and he wants them to know he cares. He has a deep love for his fellow believers, and he longs for them to go deeper with Jesus. Now, that love caused him to say some heavy things in chapter 1, and it's going to cause him to say some heavy things in the rest of the book. And so he interjects here because as he's saying these heavy things to them, he doesn't want his readers to think he's saying them because he's mad or he's frustrated with them. And when he says, listen, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth isn't in you. He doesn't want us to get, hear that with an angry voice and an angry face. What? You say you don't have sin? You're lying to yourself and the truth's not in you, you loser. Like that, he doesn't want us to hear that tone. When he says, we say we have not sinned, that what we're doing isn't wrong, again, he doesn't want us to see an angry face going, what? I can't believe you would ever think that. You make God a liar and the word's not in you. He wants us to see him with a loving voice, hear a loving voice, a caring face, a concerned face, but a caring one. Sometimes, and I've been guilty of this in the past, those who speak the truth come across as irritated and frustrated with God's people when they're standing up for the truth. Like when someone is a pastor or a speaker or a Bible study leader, when they're speaking a hard truth, they can come off as frustrated with God's people because why aren't you doing this already? And now I have failed in that area at times. Moses did that when he struck the rock. Remember, he came out and he said, must I fetch water for you rebels? I don't ever, I've never done that, but <laughs> I've had that attitude, though, when you're frustrated with the body of Christ or the church in general, and you take it out on whoever's in front of you. And that should not be. We should never speak of sin or a lack of faith or lazy surface habits among God's people as if it's a personal offense. God disciplined Moses heavily for that. You know, we should never trash Jesus' bride. I don't like it when anybody says anything negative about my bride. Surely Jesus doesn't like it when people say negative things about his bride. The church isn't worthless or hopeless. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. And don't ever develop that attitude toward the bride of Christ. Yes, we need repentance and revival and holiness and commitment to service. And particularly in our culture, the church probably needs to be challenged in those areas. But the messenger must always remember that they are a representative for someone else, the one who loves those who need the message. Jesus loves his bride. They are certainly not worthless or hopeless to him. And so John, before he gets into some more heavy things, he reminds us that we are loved. And so I would urge you this morning, in light of the fact that you're loved, you're loved by us here, you're loved by the Lord, don't push John's words away. Receive what he has to say under the inspiration of God's Spirit. So what does John want to say? Well, first off, he explains that, that he needs to explain something. I need to clarify the topic of sin. These things write I unto you. These things refers to this letter. I'm writing this letter, this letter that I'm presently writing to you. He says, I'm writing to you with the goal that you'd sin not. 
John started this letter with the key idea of fellowship, right? And he has established how we fellowship with a perfect, holy, sin-purging God, right? It's through our regular confession, through living in his light, right? That's how we do that. But the bulk of John's letter revolves around another key to going deeper with the Lord. And it's knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm saved, having assurance of my salvation. This concept changed my life. When I first understood 1 John and started to learn the truths in here, it absolutely changed my life. Like when we sang that song about, you know, my sin was deep, your grace was deeper, my shame was wide, your arms are wider, my guilt was great, but your love was greater still. I didn't understand that. I understood that my sin was great, that my shame was wide, and my guilt was great. I understood that. I understood that. But I didn't understand how Jesus and what he'd done was greater. I didn't have assurance of my salvation. And going through 1 John changed my life as a young Christian. So John is going to explain in the rest of this letter, the things that I write unto you, I'm about to say. He's gonna explain that there are three tests to determine if I'm a genuine believer. There's a moral test, a love test, and a truth test. These are changes that occur in us when you're born again, okay? And chapters two through five of this letter are gonna revolve around those three tests. We're gonna hit all of them multiple times. When John gets to chapter two, he's about to introduce that first test, the moral test. But he doesn't wanna be misunderstood. He's gonna say some heavy things. Like for example, in verse four he says, he that says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. See, John realizes that what he's about to say and what he's already said could lead us to two misconceptions. The first misconception that he wants to clear up before launching into the moral test is that, well, sin isn't a big deal. And we can sin as much as we want as long as we just confess it. He wants to clear that up. And then secondly, he wants to clear up the misconception that what he's about to say about obedience means that he's teaching legalism, that we, we have to achieve a certain moral standard to get saved or maintain a certain moral standard to stay saved. He wants to make sure we don't think that's what he's saying. And so he's going to clarify sin for us and give us a proper conception of it, a proper perspective. And so the first part of this perspective we need to understand is that sin is a big deal. He says, these things I'm writing unto you so you don't sin, or literally, in order that you might not sin. His first clarification looks back to what he said in chapter 1, that we might conclude that sin isn't that bad since confession is supposed to be a regular part of the Christian life. So he just comes right out and says it. I am not giving you a license to sin or trying to lessen the awfulness of sin by saying confession is a regular part of a Christian's life. I'm not saying that sin's okay. I'm not saying it's okay to sin, and I'm not saying it's less sinful or less wicked now that you're a Christian. Sin is never okay. It never uh, becomes less wrong or more palatable to God. It's always wicked, and I must never forget that it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. That's part of what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We remember, right? We remember it was my sin that put him there. Therefore, John's goal in writing to us is always that we'll, as we grow in the Lord, as we go deeper with Christ, we end up sinning less, not more. Not staying where we are, but we're growing, right? That's what he's saying. I'm writing this to you so that you grow, that you sin less, because that will be the result of going deeper with Jesus, is that we grow in Christ. We sin less. 
If I'm going deeper with Jesus, I will become more like Jesus, the one who never sinned. Now, I do want to pause here for a moment to say that I know you have probably experienced this, but I have experienced frustration with that process because very often I feel like even though I find victory over one sinful attitude or behavior, God just then pulls back like another layer and I find more ugliness there, right? Like, you know, I have an area that I'm wrestling with and seeking to overcome, and then I overcome it, and the Lord's like, wonderful. You're, you know, you've allowed me to work in your life, my spirit to work in your life, and you're walking in the spirit in this area, but let's now look at another area you're walking in the flesh. And the Lord like pulls back the curtain. You're like, ah, I thought we, we like, we arrived somewhere. This is awful. This is ugly. What happened? As we then start the process with that new area that we need to grow in. It can feel like we're never sinning less. And the enemy uses that feeling that we have, that conception that we have, to condemn us, to say, you haven't changed at all. You're the same person you've always been. You're just as selfish, you're just as this, you're just as that. I mean, look at all this mess that's still there. You've been a Christian for how many years, and you're still like this? You know, because you've heard him say it too. I think it's important to maintain perspective. I have to remind myself, Will, just because what God is currently convicting you about is just as ugly as all the things you've already overcome doesn't mean that you haven't overcome some things already. I have to remind myself that it's not like the ugly thing that God's dealing with now wasn't present before. I just didn't realize it back then. And so the truth is, I am sinning less. I am growing. You are sinning less. You are growing. There's just the truth. Truth is, we have a long way to go. (laughs) We have a long way to go. The gap is so wide that it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's not a one-time race. It's many legs of the race. It's many tapes that we're breaking until we eventually break, you know, the final tape. So, Rather than walking around condemned or being frustrated with yourself and your growth as a Christian, you need to see just how great the cross is, how great his love for you is, because the fact that Jesus would die for you and welcome you into his family, knowing how far you had to go, is a very encouraging thought. It's a very encouraging thought. I can't tell you how many times we'll sing a song like that, and I'll just, you think to the Lord, I think, Lord, is this all true? And, and of course, the Lord brings scriptures to your mind. Of, yes, it is, Will. Lord, do you love me this much even though I still have so far to go? He's like, yes, and I've brought you this far already. I'll take you to the end. He which has begun a good work and you will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. That's his promise. So rather than walking around condemned or being frustrated, be encouraged that the Lord knew how far you had to go, how wide the gap was, and he's in for the long haul. He knew it beforehand. John's second clarification now has to do with the other side of that. We, now, so now we deal with this idea that sin's not that big a deal. He's like, no, no, I want you, my goal here at the end of this book is you're sinning less. But now he switches to the other side to deal with this idea that he's teaching legalism, that obedience is legalism. And he says here, listen, I'm writing this so you might not sin. And so the second reason I'm writing this to you is that if any man should sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So John is looking forward now that we might conclude 
based on what he says about obedience, that a sinful action on our part means I must not be saved. I sinned today. I must not be saved. Or that we need to stay away from God because we're too dirty to come into his light again when we sin as a Christian. He says, I want to clarify so you don't have that misconception. You see, while sin is always wrong and always wicked, the reality is that believers still fall short of God's standard. That's why confession is so important. John already told us in 1 John 1, 9 that God responds to us in a just and righteous way when we confess our sins. He doesn't keep us out or tell us we've gone too far or done too much. What John is now going to explain is how that interaction with God works and why it works. And so he says, I'm also writing this to you that if any of you should sin, if any of you should engage in wrong behavior, if any of you should miss the mark of God's standard, and again, this if-then statement is a third-class statement, which means it's a more probable future conditional clause. John expects that Christians will still sin, but there's good news if we do. If we should fall short, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, you may have heard this about the Holy Spirit when it refers to Him as our comforter, that it's that word paraclete or paracletus in the Bible language. This is that same word here, advocate. Advocate is comforter, paraclete. It means a helper, a mediator, a defense lawyer, one who champions your cause. A.T. Robertson said this, it's such a good explanation. The Holy Spirit is God's advocate on earth with men. He speaks well for God to us. He speaks on God's behalf to us. While Christ is man's advocate with the Father, Jesus speaks well of us to the Father. He speaks on our behalf to the Father. He is that mediator. You see, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he did do so as the victorious, risen Son of God, returning to take his rightful place that he had had from all eternity at his Father's side. But he also returned to his Father's side as our friend, as the Son of Man. He returned to his Father's side as the groom who is waiting for his Father to give the nod so he can go rapture his bride. He is both, Son of God and Son of Man. And so it says that he is our advocate with the Father. That word there, with, it speaks of an interactive relationship. It's not like when just someone's with me standing here next to me. Jesus is not the figurehead son of God. It's not like you get to heaven and the angels are like, all right, that's the Father, that's Jesus, and they just wave, and when the ceremony's over, they're like, all right, I'm out of here. It's not just an official role he has. He is interactive with the Father. The word there, with, speaks of an interactive relationship. Jesus' position at the Father's right hand is not merely a role Jesus plays in heaven. He is in constant communication with his Father. He prays for us, and he speaks on our behalf. Now, this word advocate, Greeks used it in a secular sense, a legal sense, to refer to someone who was a friend of the accused person, someone who would be called up to speak on the behalf of the accused person or to enlist the sympathy of the judge. That's who Jesus is for us. And yet... Jesus does not go on our behalf before the Father the same way someone would go before a judge. Like someone would go before the judge who was a paraclete and they would say, listen, I've known this guy for 20 years, he's a good guy. Maybe he messed up here, but generally he's a good guy. Will you please be lenient with him? 
Or you would go and say, he didn't do it wrong. I know this guy. I know his character. I know he didn't do this. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't go to his dad and go, you know, dad, I know he sinned, but he's actually really a good guy. You should just overlook it. Or he doesn't say, you know, dad, I know this guy. He's actually not guilty. He doesn't do either of those things. The Bible tells us here that our advocate with the Father is Jesus Christ, the righteous. While Jesus is returning to his position as the eternal Son of God, he also earned his way to that position by his righteous life as a man. And unlike us, Jesus is at all times in perfect fellowship with the Father. There's never a time where Jesus and the Father are sitting up there and Jesus is like, Dad, you're kind of quiet lately. He's like, yeah, I didn't agree with what you did over there. The Father's never out of fellowship with Jesus. They're always in perfect fellowship. Jesus always does the right thing. So should a Christian sin, Jesus has access and constantly speaks on their behalf. He doesn't plead that we are innocent. He doesn't make excuses for the wrong we've done. Instead, he acknowledges our guilt for what we did, but he presents his work on the cross as the ground for my acquittal. And since Jesus is always in perfect fellowship with the Father, and his blood is sufficient for all my sins, the Father always invites me into his presence to confess my sins. There's never a time when the Father says, you can't come. You can't come. Because even as I sinned, Jesus is already in conversation with the Father going, Dad, what they did is wicked, it's wrong, and I know, like we tell them not to do this, but I paid for it in full. And the father's like, I know you did, son. And so they're welcome to come in. He invites us to come to confess our sin so he can be faithful and just and forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a sense, the Bible doesn't come out and say this, but there is a sense based on what John's saying here where the father is really only asking one question when you come into his light. And it's this. Do you agree with everything my son has told me about your sin? Are you in agreement with that? And like, are you in agreement with A, that there's no excuse for it, it's your fault, you own it, and do you agree that he paid for it? Because if you're in agreement with everything my son has told me about your sin, then we're good. We're good. You can come, and everything will be received. Isn't that an amazing position to be in? I love that. What a cool thought. So often, our sin is great, our shame is wide, and all these things. I didn't know I was going to do that song. It just works out really well. Aren't in my notes. But we feel these things, we sense these things, and the enemy jumps on it, right? He just jumps on it. And, but the truth is that just none of it matters. If we will come and agree with everything Jesus has to say to the Father, Father says, that's, that's good enough for me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you're a Christian, this is who you are in Christ. This is the position you have now in Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 with me, just a few pages to the left. Hebrews 12. The author of this letter to the Hebrews He's writing to a group of Christians who are really struggling. They were experiencing heavy persecution, and they were starting to question whether it was worth it to follow Jesus. 
And they're Jewish believers, so they were considering going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, going back to the Old Covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically spending an entire book explaining that if you go back to that, it's a worse covenant. It's a further away relationship with the Lord. Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. That he won for us is better. And here at the end of chapter 12, he describes the difference between the two covenants. And he starts off in verse 18 by saying, for you, since you've come to faith in Christ now, you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words whose voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure that which was commanded. The reference here is to Mount Sinai. When God brought Israel out of Egypt and they came and they camped at Mount Sinai, God's very presence came down on the mountain in fire and lightning and thunder and quaking. And then it says so much so that the top of the mountain was charred by his presence, by his holy presence there. But then on top of that, out of the holy presence and all the awe that was there as they're watching, they came out of their tents to watch God's presence come down, God begins to speak to them so they all can hear with their own ears. And what he begins to say is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image unto me. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall keep my Sabbaths. Make sure they're holy to you, set apart to you. You shall honor your father and mother. And you don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. And as you're sitting there and you're listening and you're there, your family, and you look over your wife and you go, I've done seven of those and it's only 10 a.m., we're dead. This thing up there is going to kill us. And so they ran and hid behind their tents, the Bible says, and they pled with Moses, pleaded with him saying, Moses, we don't want to hear his voice anymore. We don't want to hear these commandments anymore. This is bad news for us. You go talk to him and tell us what he says. And that's how what happened. Then Moses went up on the mountain, got all the instructions and came back down. That's not how God originally wanted to do it. That relationship was one that was a distance relationship. Even if you came close, even if you were the high priest and you could go into the Holy of Holies, you still could only do it once a year, and it's only one dude who could do it. There was always a reminder that there was distance between you and God. And it says that the sight was so terrible, verse 21, that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And he had been to the burning bush. He had experienced God. He knew God loved him. He knew God wanted a relationship with him, but the whole experience even shook him. The writer of Hebrews says, you've not been brought to that. That's where you used to be. But here, verse 22, you are coming to Mount Zion, a different mountain, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You've been brought close. Your position is different. It's better. The blood of Abel spoke what? Justice. Wrong has been done, and I need justice. I was murdered. I was wronged, and justice, his blood cried out for justice from the earth. Our sins do the same thing. They cry out for justice, that God deal with this. It's wrong what's going on. We feel that way when we see wicked things in the world. We say, God, do something about this. 
Well, our sin does the same thing. It cries out to God. But Jesus' blood cries out something better than Abel's blood. It doesn't cry for justice. It says, it cries out, it is finished. Justice has been served. It's done. It's been accomplished. Everything that needs to be done to satisfy our wrath is accomplished. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Will, that sounds way too good to be true. Surely God must harbor some anger at me when I sin as a Christian, right? I mean, if what I do of my sin is so horrible that it requires a heavy judgment like hell, then can I really be that forgiven? Well, John goes on to explain, yes, you can be. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and this advocate who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who's already done everything to bring us into fellowship with God, he is also something else. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation there, it means the means of appeasing someone so as to bring about a reconciliation. At their base nature, the Greeks believe their gods, treated mankind with disdain or aloofness. They almost didn't even want to treat with their creations at all unless it was part of their devices of how they were trying to plot against each other. They believed that the gods looked at mankind as annoyances, peons, frustrations, and tools. But they taught that through a propitiation, through an offering, you could make the gods look on you with favor. That all of a sudden, Zeus might not care about you, never acknowledge you, never think about you, or if he did, just in an annoying way, that if you brought an offering, that he would go, ooh, this is impressive. My attitude towards you is now different. I see you now with favor. The Greeks used this word to describe the change that occurred in their God's attitude toward you. The Bible never uses this word that way. It does not speak of a change in God because God does not change. It speaks of a change in who we are so that God can act toward us in the way that he's always desired to, which is with favor, with blessing. God the Father has never been aloof toward us. He has never held us in disdain. Even though the gap is so big and so wide, like David, he's like, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should think on him? David looked out at the stars and he's like, I'm so small, I'm so puny, I am worthy of disdain. Why do you love me? Why do you care about me? Why are you involved in my life? Why do you want to have a relationship with me? It blew him away. God has never been aloof toward us or held us in disdain. We are so far beneath him, but he has always longed to draw us near and to walk with us just like he did with Adam and Eve before the fall. But of course, my sins get in the way of that, don't they? God is just, and so he will not just ignore my sins. Even though he longs to draw me close, he will bring justice because it's the right thing to do. Well, Jesus satisfied God's required justice upon the cross. He is the offering which alters not who his father is, but who I am, changes who I am. When I repent of my sins and put my trust in Christ, I'm justified. I am declared righteous where before I was declared totally unprofitable. I am now in Christ. Everything we learned when we did our study in the book of Ephesians a few months, years ago. (laughs) Everything we learned in there about who we are in Christ, 
That's the change that John's referring to here when he says he's the propitiation for our sins. He is the offering for our sins that changes who we are. God the Father never changed, but because I am now different, God the Father can draw me close. He can bless me. He can walk with me like he's always wanted to. So yes, you are really that forgiven. God does not harbor any anger at you because he poured out all of that anger for all of your sins upon himself already. That's what it says here. He's a propitiation, not just for our sin nature or the idea that we sin, but for our sins. All of the individual violations of God's standards, every one of them, no exceptions. Now, when I teach this truth, and I brought it up the first time when I went through 1 John, frequently I'm asked the question, okay, Pastor Will, I get that, but what about the sins I haven't even committed yet? How can those be forgiven? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross? Every single one of them. I mean, I'm not that old. (laughs) Every single one of them. So every one of them were future in the mind of Christ when he died for them. Jesus is my propitiation. He changes me into someone who is completely reconciled to God. And since I'm a new person now, I am welcome to come close. So yes, we should seek to not sin. Obedience should always be our goal. Never, like we should never be like, well... I know I can ask for forgiveness later. I'll just go do this. If that is how you're treating something in your life now, that is wicked. Like that is, you're totally missing the point of what John's saying. You're not understanding confession. You're not understanding walking in the light. Grace is not a license to sin, all right? So yes, we should not seek to sin, but if it should happen, we can come to him. And if we agree with our advocate, if we own our sin, the Father forgives and begins to do surgery on the area of our life changing us so that we sin less. Amen? Now, you might say, this is great news for a believer. But the verse doesn't end there. John explains that Jesus' work on the cross was for more than just those who would get saved. It was for everyone, even those who will maintain the rebellion against God to the very end. Look at the end of verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I feel the need to do something here because it's crucial, because there are those who teach that is not what this is saying here. This is not saying Jesus died for all the sins of every person who's ever lived. So if we could throw up a graphic I've got here, and I apologize, I don't like to throw stuff maybe you don't understand at you, okay? Like that, all right? I don't do this. I don't get up here and go, and this Greek word, and then I, you know, say it for you, and then, you know, tell you, you know, all these things that you don't care about and aren't going to be any use to you. I don't like to get all smarty pants on you, okay? However, it's important to understand something about the New Testament language, Every Greek preposition is tied to a direction. It's spatial, okay? It's different than us. I might say, yeah, this is my buddy Bob. He's with me today. When you use the word with, though, in Greek, it's more than just like with me could mean we're in the same venue. could mean we're on the same side. It could, it could mean all sorts of things. But it's very specific in the New Testament language. 
every preposition is spatial. It's tied to a direction. So, for example, when I mentioned earlier the word with, just how it describes an interactive relationship with God. Oops, got to turn the pointer on. There we go. That word right there, that's with, pros in the Greek. It means toward, and the spatiality or the direction is moving toward something. So the reason I can say to you when it says we have an advocate with the Father means that there's an interactive relationship. I can say that because that prepositional phrase, pros, with, means he's moving toward the object. So the idea is there's, there's closeness there, there's intimacy there, there's interaction. Well, this word for here, when it says, and he died not for ours only, is a different prepositional phrase. It's the word peri here, which means around. It's the way that you could picture it is as a circle. Whenever the word for peri is used like this, it means that everything that is about to be talked about falls within this circle. So everything we're about to talk about when it concerns what Jesus did for our sins is all in the same circle. Make sense? All right. We can get rid of the monstrosity. (laughs) Let's take all humanity's sins and divide them into two piles. One pile is the sins of those who are saved, and the other pile is the sins of those who are lost. The word for here describes a big circle with both of those piles inside of it. That is the only way you can understand it. A big circle with both of those piles inside. Why is that important? Because there is a doctrine in some churches known as limited atonement. It's in some reformed churches. I'm not saying they're evil or bad. I'm just saying we strongly disagree with this doctrine because it is not biblical. And it's the idea that Jesus did not die for everyone's sins. He only died for the sins of those who would believe. We reject that doctrine because the Bible does not teach that idea. Now, The reason it's so dangerous is because when you teach people that Jesus didn't die for everyone, then how do you have the impetus or even the confidence to go out and speak to someone and say, Jesus died for your sins? You can't know. In fact, it creates in you a sense of almost inability because why would I go out and share with someone if I might be wasting my time since they might not even be someone Jesus chose to go to heaven? We do not believe that Jesus chose some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. We believe what John said here, that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but for the entire world. That he satisfied all of God's righteous demands for sin for every human being who has ever lived or will live. This is what the Bible teaches in other places. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 I have you know, had the sad opportunity to speak to some people who come from this type of doctrine, and they, they'll explain, I just don't understand why I should share my faith. I don't even know if that person is someone who can receive the Lord. I don't even know if Jesus died for that person. Well, Paul said, this is why we labor and suffer reproach. This is why we work so hard to get the gospel to everybody. This is why we suffer reproach for preaching the gospel, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe pretty clear. Hebrews 2.9 says the same exact idea. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, we're not looking for angels or Moses or or any other figure. We're, We're looking to Jesus. He says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. 
That's no exceptions. When it says that he, he's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, that word only means the only entity in a class. There are two classes of humanity. There are those who believe and those who don't. But he was a propitiation not just for those who would believe, not only one class. And just in case we didn't quite understand what classes of people John is talking about, he makes it clear when he says, but also for the sins of the whole world. That phrase, whole world, means the entire cosmos. John almost always uses this word for world, cosmos, in an ethical sense to describe the world system that's opposed to God. In other words, he's talking about the entirety of lost humanity. All of lost humanity is in his mind here. Every single human being who has been separated from God by their sin, including those he knows who would believe and those he knew would reject him. John 3.16, really simple. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever means exactly what you think it means, each and every person. And so because of that, two important things. Number one, no person can ever say, Jesus didn't die for me. No one. Listen, I don't, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how wicked you've been. Jesus died for you. He died for you. And Jesus can change who you are, and he can reconcile you to the Father. If you remain lost and you experience eternal judgment, that is not God's wish or God's fault. That is your choice. But the second concept is you can tell every single person you meet with absolute 100% confidence, Jesus died for you, and he wants to rescue you. So, Rest in your forgiveness for sure, but go tell the great news to somebody who doesn't have it yet. Amen? Well, as Andrew comes up to close us out with uh, a song as we're going to take the Lord's Supper, I think what a great topic to study before we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because we talk about having a correct idea of sin. That, that is exactly what communion is about. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we, we hold the bread and the cup and then we partake and we remember him as we're doing so, the idea is we're reflecting on his great love for us in what he did for us by coming, becoming a man and dying for us on the cross, but also what has changed in our lives because now we're under the new covenant. Now we're free from sin. Now our goal should be to not sin. So this is a great time to do what 1 John chapter 1 talks about, and John chapter 2 as well, to come to our advocate, to come to our Father. If there's sin going on in your life, if there's stuff you haven't dealt with, if there's something between you and God, come into the light. Confess your sin because he's faithful and just, and he wants to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is a great time to remember what he did and to come clean with the Lord. So Lord, we give this time to you now to do just that. Lord, our desire is that there's no one here that leaves today, Lord, without coming close to you. Lord, I pray even now if there might be someone here who doesn't know you that's never been born again, Lord, that you would be convicting them now of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but drawing them close, reminding them that you're their propitiation too. Lord, that you died for all their sins, that there is nothing else that needs to be done for them to come near except for them to repent and believe. So, Lord, would you draw us all to your side? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
One last thing. If you are here today and you're not a believer, this isn't just something to do. This is not just a ritual we perform. It has great meaning. And so, you know, if, if you're not a believer, then my encouragement to you is rather than not partake or not participate, get saved and participate. Repent of your sins and trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior and then share this special moment as we all remember what Christ did for us.